Um, we've been talking about Declare Springboro for uh, a few weeks, and uh, but we want to make sure that you realize it's this weekend. So the opportunity, not not the worship event, that'll be at the end of the month, but the service opportunity is this weekend, this Saturday. And I'm thrilled to be able to announce that we have about 90 people from uh, all the area churches that have signed up to serve, but we actually have spots for 150. So if you haven't yet signed up, we'd love for you to do that. You can even right now go to our website on your mobile device and you can click on the picture that says Springboro Intermediate and Clear Creek Elementary. You can sign up for a spot. We'd love to have a good showing. Uh, from Southwest at that event and just really be able to show um, our community and show uh, the children and teachers and, uh, and staff that, that uh, we are for them, that we are supporting them and love them and want to uh, just show that in a real tangible way. So can you be a part of that and sign up for that? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the time of worship that we've had today. We thank you, Father, for just being able to declare your praise of, of how great and awesome you are. And Father, we're thankful, Father, that uh, you've invited us to relationship with you. But Father, you've taught us to love you and to love others. And I pray that we as a church will not be just people that sing about serving you, but that we will live it out. And so I pray, Father, even this weekend that, that there can be a great showing from Southwest at this community event to serve and to meet a real need in local schools. And so I pray for your blessing on that event. We pray for good weather, and we pray that you'll be honored and exalted. Father, I pray now as we, as we open up your word, as we read from the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, I pray that you'll allow uh, this document that was inspired by you over 3,000 years ago, that it'll speak true to our hearts and our lives today, and that we'll take away some really practical, relevant messages for our life and how we can live it out even this week. So just speak to us, Lord, during this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to go ahead and be dismissing at this time. We have a class for our students, 6th through 8th grade, and we want to encourage you to be making your way there now in our student wing. Well, last week we completed the first half of this intriguing book of Ecclesiastes that we've been uh, tackling this summer. And as we begin the second half of this book, let's review a key uh, transition verse from last week. It's actually the last verse of chapter 6, Ecclesiastes 6, verse 12. It says, For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? As we reflect on this life, which Throughout this book, the writer reminds us over and over again that this life is brief. It is, uh, it is like smoke. It is like a mist. It passes quickly. And so the question is, how can we live this fleeting life in a, in a way that isn't simply meaningless, but in a way that is of meaning? As we turn to chapter 7, the author, who I believe is Solomon, describes his search for wisdom. 
And in the process, we discover that at times, if you'll look in the, in the message insert in the bulletin, our first observation is that problems may not be as bad as they appear. So let's pick up the reading in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, a good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. And the day you die is better than the day you're born. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. And after all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. A fool's laughter is quickly gone like thorns crackling in a fire. This also is meaningless. Extortion, or as some translations read, oppression, turns wise people into fools, and bribes corrupt the heart. Finishing is better than starting, Patience is better than pride. Control your temper, for anger labels you a fool. Don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. Wisdom is even better than when you have money. Both are a benefit as you go through life. Wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. Accept the way God does things, for who can straighten what he has made crooked? Enjoy joy, prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. Wow. This scripture, this section of scripture is just... Uh, uh, rightly subtitled in some translations of the Bible as wisdom. Because this section is truly chocked full with just morsel after morsel of wisdom. And in this opening Ecclesiast of Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon is making a number of comparisons. He compares honor to appearance, parties to funerals, laughter to sorrow, and praise to criticism. On this 4th of July weekend, I have a few comparisons to make as well. First of all, this is the first uh, 4th of July that Jane and I have a puppy. Okay, here he is, Pete the pup. And we're trying to impress upon Pete uh, you know, throughout chapter 7, Solomon's pointing out that this is better than this. So we're trying to, he's making all these comparisons, we're trying to help Pete understand that chew toys are better than fingers and toes, okay? So that's one thing, you know, by the way, somebody should have warned me how sharp puppies' teeth are, okay? I've got wounds to, to prove it. And... Um, Secondly, it's better to have a puppy in May or June than on the 4th of July weekend, okay? Uh, I've always enjoyed fireworks until this weekend, okay? And uh, in the midst of fireworks anxiety, we've not only had one dog in our house, but our daughter has been visiting us from Detroit area, and she brought her dog as well, who has anxiety issues, and lead us to say, you know, we not only had 
4th of July fireworks. We had the 3rd of July fireworks. Uh, and we even had 5th and 6th of July fireworks. And so if I look a little tired today, it's because I've been up late with some anxious dogs, even last night. And I think after being a dog owner, I think all fireworks should stop at 10 o'clock at night, okay? That's just, that's, that's my new uh, theory on fireworks. And, and yet, let's get back to Ecclesiastes 7. As he's, as he's developing some of these comparisons, as we read this amazing chapter on wisdom, we don't have time to dig into all of them, but let's just look at a few, okay? The first comparison is found in verses one and two. When we read, a good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume, and the day you die is better than the day you're born. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. Now, at first glance, this, this paragraph might seem a bit counterintuitive. And yet, as we'll see throughout this chapter, Solomon is probing, and I believe he's calling into question some of the conventional wisdom of his day, and maybe even some of the conventional wisdom of our day. In fact, this is something you see over and over again in the wisdom literature of the Bible. There's a section of the Bible, maybe you didn't realize this, but there's a section of the Bible that is, is entitled and described as wisdom literature. There's, there's Job, there's Psalms, there's Proverbs, there's Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Those are all under the category of wisdom literature. And in the wisdom literature, uh, you, you have to be careful because there's this conversation going on about uh, conventional wisdom versus real wisdom. And if you're not careful when you read the wisdom literature, you can get tripped up. For example, in Job, if you've ever read Job, that's part of wisdom literature. There's sections of Job as Job is going through suffering. By the way, that's a great book that we all have to tackle some, some summer maybe, okay? I don't know. But, uh, but Job is, is, is this great book. I love it. But it's a little confusing the first time you read it because Job is going through some difficult things in life, really difficult things in life. And he has three friends that gather around him and, and they're trying to speak wisdom into his life. But the truth of it is they're not speaking God's wisdom. They're speaking the wisdom of their day. And the first time I, I read Job, I'm like, man, what they're saying makes sense. Job needs to, you know, buck up. He needs to repent. But the truth of it is, when you get to the end of the book, at the end of Job, God rebukes his friends and says, you were wrong. Job hadn't done anything wrong. See, we've got to make sure that we're constantly comparing the wisdom of this world and the, what's considered, uh, you know, common sense and wisdom to compare to, to God's wisdom. I think that's what we're seeing Solomon really deal with here in Ecclesiastes. Let's make some observations. He begins by saying that a good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. I don't know if you've ever noticed that perfume is mentioned quite a bit in Scripture. And when you think of the context, the time, and the place, it makes a lot of sense. 
This was a time in history that, that people uh, didn't necessarily bathe on a, on a daily or maybe even maybe weekly basis, okay? And we're, a lot of the Bible stories take place in the Middle East. It's hot, if you didn't know that, in the Middle East. Uh, there's a desert. And, and undoubtedly, there was a great place for perfume to cover up at times certain smells. Do you get my point here? Okay. And Solomon is making a strong, strong statement contrasting the outward image or appearance that we might be trying to impress upon others and the reality of what's really going on in the inner self. Ecclesiastes reminds us to choose substance of character over outward image. He goes on to say, your name or good reputation is not fixed at birth. Your name is simply given to you at birth. But reputation attached to your name is really what it's fixed at death. After you've lived your life, what, do you, what reputation do you have then? You know, this past week was a milestone in my family's, my personal family's history. July 2nd marked the 70th anniversary of my parents' wedding. Here's a photo of them when they were celebrating their 50th anniversary. And although my mom is still living, obviously, by the way, I was the youngest child, okay? Youngest by far, okay? I just wanna make sure, make note of that. But, but my mom is still living, she's 90 years old, but my dad passed away 12 years ago, and yet, whenever I see this picture, which is hanging on the wall in our living room, I'm reminded of two things. One is that I look a lot like him, okay? And the secondly, is that he was a man of character who had a sterling reputation. You know, at his funeral, as sad as it was to say goodbye, it was so encouraging to have person after person that was standing in a long line to tell us what my dad meant to them, or what a man of character and a man of integrity he was. My, de my desire is not simply to look like my dad, that's given. My desire is to follow his example of character and integrity. For those of you who are younger, it's important for you to realize that every day, and for those of us who are older as well, every day we're building our reputation for good or for not. We're building that reputation by the words, the actions, and the reactions that we have in life. You see, over time, our character will really surface, and people will get to know the real person that we are. We might be able to camouflage it for a while, we're perfumed, but the truth of it is, over time, what is really on the inside will come out. What are people, over time, seeing from you? Are you building that reputation that lasts and is of good character? 
Solomon then goes on to say that a day at a funeral is more valuable than parties, which is most likely referring in this context to weddings. Now, most of us, I think, if we took a poll, would choose attending a wedding over a funeral any day. I had the privilege even this past month to officiate both weddings and a funeral. And although I would prefer to officiate a wedding, it's just a more joyous occasion. It's, it's just, I don't know, it's just something I enjoy doing more than a fu- funeral. And yet, undoubtedly, there is more deep reflection, and there's more soul-searching that takes place at a funeral than a wedding. Solomon continues in verse 3, he says, sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. You see, there, there truly is a refining effect that takes place in times of sadness, in times of grief. It's often in the midst of pain and loss that we learn the most. Grief, like pain, can truly be a refining experience. As C.S. Lewis wrote, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, when we go through those hardships of life, when, we're, when we have to face those difficult times, whether it be a, a funeral of a loved one, whether it be a suffering in light of cancer or some kind of disease, when it's, when it's some kind of hardship, challenge, it's in those times of pain that I think if we will listen, we'll hear God shouting to us and we can learn a great deal. Do we allow those times of sorrow to refine us instead of just simply trying to get on to laughter? Next, Solomon turns to praise and criticism. The NIV, I I think it's a little bit more precisely translated in verses 5 and 6. It reads this way, it is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. It's significant that the wise person is described here by by Solomon in a singular voice, while he describes a chorus of praise with a plural number of foolish people. I think there's something for us to note there. It's easier to find people who will support our lifestyle, support our choices, to even support our comments or views than to find someone who will truly speak truth into our life, telling us not necessarily what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. One commentator describing the crackling of thorns He described it this way. He says, they, the thorns, provide quick combustion. You know, if you can just picture maybe some kindling or or kind of the the thin pieces at the end of a thorn bush and you put them in a fire. 
They provide a quick combustion. Dry thorns were often used to start a fire. They do not give off much heat, but they do make a lot of noise. The same could be said of a person who always gathers around themselves people who would say what they want to hear. There might be a lot of noise. There might be a lot of chatter. But the question is, is there real substance? And is that what you need to hear? In Proverbs, Solomon also wrote, in Proverbs 27, verse 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Now, I have to be honest, I don't like it when someone rebukes me or points out something in my life that needs to change. I'm not sure if anybody likes that, okay? I certainly don't. But but Solomon says it's better to have people in your life that will tell you the truth, even if it's not what you want to hear, than simply just gathering around yourself a chorus of people that give you attaboys. That's why I deeply value those people in my life, my wife, the elders here at Southwest, the leadership team, staff members, outside coaches, who will tell me the truth about my life and my ministry and love me enough to give me that constructive criticism that I need to hear. Do you have that person in your life who will really tell you the truth? Not to be unkind or to tear you down, but to to tell you the truth, to, to help you be refined and to help you be that person that God called you to be who will love you enough to give you that constructive criticism. Remember, it's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools. Now, the last phrase that we want to take a moment to mention is the first half of of, uh, of of the chapter is verse 10, which states, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. Now, I think Solomon's hitting on something that's really important for us to take to heart here. You see, it's so easy for us to romanticize the past and to then end up just describing our current situation or our current generation in in a dismal way with doom and gloom. Now, don't get me wrong. I long as, as a as a church leader, and I long as a church for us to influence the the 60 to 80% of the population that, depending on what survey you read, uh, 60 to 80% of the population that are not currently attending church. Some of you have been here long enough. You were here a couple years ago when we marked our 20th anniversary as a church where we had up on the wall a bunch of dots. Do you remember that? And we, we had a dot that represented a thousand people. And we did a, we did a little demographic study and we said there's 80,000 people that are within five miles of this building. Okay, 10, 15 minute drive, 80,000 people. And just if you take the, 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 the statistics and the research, and we even tallied up to some of the larger local churches and all the area churches, we tried to come up with a number. And our estimate was about 65,000 people within driving, short driving distance of this building that aren't attending church. And we said, we wanna be a church that reaches out and makes a difference in that population. 
We want to be a church that reaches out with hope to share the hope that Jesus can bring to a person's life. And we want to be very intentional about that. And you know, two years have passed and, and, and our intensity and our intention has not changed at all. We continue to have that our, as our vision. And we want to remind you from time to time that that's, that's what our vision is as a church, to reach out and to make a difference and to influence those around us. And we're continually looking for ways to do that. And if you have some ideas, let us know. We're eager to make an impact on the folks that haven't made Jesus the center of their life. Now, none of that's changed. And I'm still as passionate of that as I, as, as I was two years ago, and even more so. But the truth of it is, we can look at the, those statistics and we can think, you know, wow, man, the good old days in America when everybody went to church. Well, I, I'm, I like to study history. And you know what I found is, I'm not sure that the good old days were ever really there. Just being honest with you, when you go back and look at, now there was a time in the early 1700s with the, the, the Great Awakening that there was a real revival in this country. But when you get to the time of the revolution, we just celebrated that 4th of July, 1780, I, I went back and dug up some research on that. You know, now we're saying, hey, there's 20 to 40% of people in, in our culture that, in America that go to church. Here's what I found as I researched back in 1780, among the adult people that lived in America, that not counting slaves or Native Americans, okay, because unfortunately that, those weren't considered at that point in the count, but that, that those who adhered to a church, the number was between 10 to 30% in this country. In fact, South Carolina and New Hampshire had the, they were tied for the highest of all the states and they had 16% of the population in those two states that attended church. That's pretty, that might even be lower than today. North Carolina, okay, and if you're from North Carolina, I, I, maybe you can give me some insight. They had the lowest percentage. Uh, maybe, maybe all the church people went south to South Carolina. I don't know. But North Carolina only had 4% of the state population in 1780 that were a member or adhered to a church. You see, we've got to be careful longing for the good old days. And that's what Solomon says. Sometimes they weren't as good as we painted them. And maybe that means that sometimes today is not as bad as sometimes people would like to paint it. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, there's evil. There's injustice. We want to address that. But, but maybe we need to focus on the hope that Christ can bring and share that hope with other people instead of giving a message of doom and, doom and gloom. Well, let's move forward to the second half of the chapter. I got stuck a little bit too long there in the first half. And, and I know some of you are watching your clock because you got a soccer game to watch a little bit later. But uh, just bear with me. We're going to work our way through the second half here a little quicker. But the second part is, if, if you want to title the second half of Ecclesiastes 7, is human wisdom and understanding is limited. Our first observation in this section, which includes a number of cautions, is to avoid extremes. To avoid extremes. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. I haven't seen, I've seen every, excuse me, I have seen everything in the, this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. So don't be too good or too wise. 
Why, why destroy yourself? On the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? Pay attention to these instructions for anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. Now, I don't think that Solomon is advocating what is sometimes called the golden mean, which, where you only practice a moderate amount of wickedness. I'm not saying go, go sin a little bit. That's not what I'm saying here. And I don't think that's what Solomon's saying. And yet I do think that he's reminding us to avoid the extremes, which often can be seen by those who are trying to impress others with their, their uh, as one writer described it, their excessive righteousness, which can come across oftentimes as what? Religious pride, arrogance. Possibly it's by using big religious theological words, or is what I like to call Christianese. Have you ever been around somebody that, you know, they just use all this Christianese language and you're not even sure what they're saying? A number of years ago, when we were still meeting at the Y, there was a, there was a pastor in the Dayton area who was trying to partner with the Y and he, in another location, and he called me up on the phone, and, and, and I don't know if he was trying to impress me, you know, if, he, if he knew me, he would know there, there was no reason to try to do that, but I don't know if he was trying to impress me or what, but he put out a string of Christian, Christianese phrases and he just was going on and on. And after, after he rattled on for quite a while, he says, you know what I mean? And I said, no, I really don't. You know, I think we need to avoid the extremes of using language that really doesn't communicate to those that maybe aren't of faith. Now, the other extreme would be maybe trying to be, and I think sometimes church leaders can be dangerous can fall into this temptation of trying to be so cool to be relatable that I've even heard of guys who like will curse on stage to show how freed up they are. And I just think, well, you know, really? Or, or try to do some outlandish thing. And Solomon reminds us to avoid both extremes. Now, for the individual Christian, when it comes to your interactions with others, do you tend to go to extremes? You know, one extreme is that all you talk about around family and friends and coworkers is your faith. You're always quoting scripture, you're always inviting them to church, you're always talking about God and maybe even describe God in a type of tone, you know, God, you know. You're trying to impress them. You know, I wonder if, if, the, if there's people that are not yet of faith that are just turned the other way when they see you coming. Now, the other extreme, and I think that's pro probably most of us fall in this other extreme, we're, we're, we're so fearful to bring up the subject of our faith. We're, we're so concerned about fitting in and being tolerant to others that we never get around to sharing what we believe. Have you gone to one extreme or the other? I think Solomon's saying, avoid both extremes. Don't be too, too righteous, but also don't go to the other extreme. Now, the next section of chapter seven, we're reminded to seek wise 
counsel. In chapter 7, verse 19, he says, One wise person is stronger than ten leading citizens of a town. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Don't eavesdrop on others. You may hear your servant curse you. For you know how often you yourself have cursed others. Boy, Solomon's just honest, isn't he? Interestingly enough, we get, we get a slightly different meaning of verse 19 from other translations when it says, wisdom makes one wise, makes one wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. Here we see the value of growing in our wisdom, and I'm convinced the best way to grow in wisdom is to pray for it, realizing that God is the source of wisdom. And yet, it, we are called in Scripture to seek wisdom from others by consulting the wise. In Proverbs, Solomon describes wisdom as a person and says that wisdom is calling. And the question is, are we listening? In Proverbs 15, it says, plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. Why many advisors? Because there's a lot of bad advice out there. And it's important that we turn to the Lord and pray for the discernment to recognize wise counsel. Are you seeking wise counsel in your life? Or do you simply just always go with your gut? Or what kind of is the norm in our culture? Are you praying for God to help you discern what's really best? And are you praying for wisdom to discern what wise counsel he goes on to describe the danger of eavesdropping on others and, and what they have to say about you. He says, when you do hear of criticism, realize that you've probably said something similar about others. Through the years, I've received my share of criticism. That might surprise you, but I have. And I've found it's easy to take offense. And at times, honestly, I have. And yet I realize from what Solomon writes here that it's much better to allow that criticism, even if it doesn't come from a good motive, to allow that criticism to refine me and to learn from it. Have you ever noticed that we tend to judge ourselves by our best intentions, and yet we tend to judge others by their worst actions? Let's be careful not to overreact to the criticism of others and make sure that we're likewise slow to make judgments on others. And finally, Solomon says, realize wisdom is rare. Let's read verse 23 to the end. It's kind of a long section, but there's a lot here, and I'm just gonna try to unpack real quickly a few thoughts. He says, I've always tried my best to let wisdom guys guide my thoughts and actions. I said to myself, I'm determined to be wise, but it didn't work. Wisdom is always distant and difficult to find. I searched everywhere, determined to find wisdom and to understand the reason for things. I was determined to prove to myself that wickedness is stupid and that foolishness is madness. I discovered that a seductive woman is a trap more bitter than death. Her passion is a snare and her soft hands are a chains. Those who are pleasing to God will escape her, but sinners will be caught in her snare. This is my conclusion, says the teacher. I discovered this after looking at the matter from every possible angle. Though I've searched repeatedly, I've not found what I was looking for. Only one out of a thousand men is virtuous, but not one woman. Oh, that's a landmine. I don't even know if I want to tackle that verse. <laughs> but I did find this. God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. 
Now, honestly, I struggle with this passage. I've read numerous commentators trying to get a sense of some of Solomon's comments. Some have suggested that he's a misogynist and that he has a low view of women, but yet in Proverbs 9, Solomon describes wisdom as lady wisdom. Proverbs 31, he describes the noble character of a woman. Some have suggested that Solomon is simply journaling his life experience. Scripture tells us that Solomon had 1,000 wives. Maybe he's just saying, I had trouble finding a good one. I don't know. Maybe the problem, Solomon, is you took 1,000 wives. Okay, but we won't. And it's not like he had a much higher view of males as he's saying there's only one in a thousand of chance of finding a good man. I think he's using hyperbole here. And yet, because it's such a landmine, I'm going to take to heart what Solomon said earlier in Ecclesiastes, let your words be few. I'm just going to let you wrestle with it. But let's summarize this last section with Solomon's closing statement. He says, but I did find this. God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. That sounds a lot like a guy who wrote scripture about a thousand years after Solomon, a guy named the Apostle Paul. When he wrote in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he goes on a little later in that letter the Apostle Paul, and says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Solomon says, I've searched and searched, and I have trouble finding a good person. The truth is, none of us are good. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. But the good news is there was one that was good, the one who came from heaven, Jesus Christ. And like Paul wrote, maybe we would die for a good man. But Jesus, who was good, died for us who are not good. That's the gospel. And that's what we observe every weekend when we take communion. We're reminded the one who was good, the one in a billion, the one in 15 billion that's ever walked on this earth, Jesus Christ, He was willing to die for us who've all gone astray. Let's allow during this time of communion to have our hearts be drawn to God's love and the the sacrifice of the one who was good, that he was willing to die for us. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you for the wisdom that we can learn from from it, like Ecclesiastes. We thank you that in Solomon, in his journey, he had trouble finding anyone that was good. Father, we have to acknowledge and admit that in and of ourselves, we're not good. We have fallen short. 
We even fall short of, of, of our ideas and our standards for our own life. But we're thankful that the one who was good, Jesus, the one who was without sin, was willing to die for us when we were far away. Help us just, just be grateful for that grace and that love. And help us be motivated this week to live a wise life, a life following the one that died for us, your son and our savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.